You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today we are discussing a topic that truly spans the healthcare world, collaborating with interpreters. Whether you're in a part of the country where working with an interpreter is rare, or you're on a first name basis with the local interpreting team, there's always room to improve the care we provide when a language barrier is present. And today's guest has worked extensively with interpreters, and she has some interesting interpretive insights herself. Dr. Kelly Murphy is an audiologist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, where she has worked for the last seven years. Prior to that, she was manager of audiology at Wake Forest University Baptist Medical Center. She has a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Georgia and a doctorate in audiology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her current work involves diagnostic evaluations, hearing aid management, and cochlear implant management in the pediatric population in a hospital setting. Dr. Murphy is also a great mentor and a great friend. I'm so glad she's able to join us today. Hey, Kelly, how you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this topic with you. Yes, me too. In my time at CHOA, where you were a dear mentor, I got to see a lot of different interpreting you know, situations. Atlanta is a very diverse city. Indeed. We have Spanish-speaking patients, Burmese-speaking patients, uh, lots of dialects I've never heard of, um, patients that use American Sign Language. So we, we have quite the variety. Yes, that's going to be really, really exciting. I'm really excited to talk about that. So why don't we just get started? Because you do have a really interesting language background. You are, I mean, you wouldn't define it as trilingual, but you definitely can dabble in multiple languages. Yes. So when I was studying psychology and had never even heard of audiology hardly as a career, um, I minored in Spanish. So I have a lot of Spanish background and I value that greatly. Um, But most of the Spanish that I learned that's most helpful to me now was actually like in people's homes and in some community service work I did when I was at UGA. And so it's very conversational. um, uh, Some of it's slang or a little bit spanglishy, depending on what population I'm with. I may bust out some words that I... uh, have learned that are not so much found in your Spanish textbook. So <laughs> I have a lot of experience in just chatting with Spanish speaking patients and families um, casually, but I make sure to actually always have an interpreter present when I'm seeing them on a patient basis. And I'm not just chatting in the booth or explaining how to do a test or um, calling to remind them of an appointment or something like that. Um, because there's such a different caliber of, Uh, Spanish that is needed or any language that's needed when you're discussing, you know, healthcare topics, things that dabble in the legal world, things that are super emotional, giving bad news, giving good news, and just making sure that everything's 100% understood. So 
I understand pretty much everything that the families and the interpreters say, um, and I am able to speak for myself, um, but I try not to so that I can actually make sure that nothing is lost in the conversation. Yeah, that's totally fair. I think that's like definitely following the guidelines and, you know, best practices in that case. But I do think it's so interesting that, you know, you understand everything that's going on. I know when I'm working with an interpreter, whatever they're saying is kind of whatever they're saying. I don't really have any any abilities to correct or, you know, help out in that. And we'll we'll get into that in a little bit when we uh, when we talk about kind of like some real world situations that you've been in, but you also know a good bit of ASL too, right? Yeah. So in my two years between um, graduate, undergrad and graduate school, part of the work I did was just in the office of a sign language interpreting agency in the DC area. And um, I was not fluent at all in ASL, but all the meetings and things around the office were done both in spoken English and ASL. So I picked up a lot of ASL while I was there. Um, And so I also have less than my Spanish knowledge, but some knowledge of ASL that, again, I sometimes use sort of to make a connection with a patient, but again, not to replace the interpreter. Um, So I value them greatly. Yeah. And that's, so when you were doing that job, did you have any idea that audiology would be, you know, down the road for you? Well, it was actually down the stairs. So there was actually an audiologist <laughs> on the first floor of that building. And I um, I thought maybe I wanted to be an interpreter. I was interested in deafness and hmm. communication disorders and things. And I was like, um, you know, I don't think that interpreter is the right job for me. Not being able to interject your opinion is really challenging. And that's mm. the, the true role of an interpreter is to leave that aside. So um, I talked to the audiologist on the first floor of the sign language interpreting office, and then decided to apply to grad school in audiology. Wow. <laughs> that's really cool. That's a really cool story. And it all comes together too. And I'm, I'm, I, I also have a little bit, you know, of a, of an ASL background. And you're right, when you're able to make those connections just like a quick hello or a how are you? It's like you kind of have that really quick rapport where there's some trust there um, that they might not have had otherwise. And, I, and I'm sure that goes for any kind of, you know, um, you know, uh, outside of using English, you know, when, when a patient has that kind of maybe anxiety going in and working Definitely. with an interpreter can be a, an unknown person a lot of the time. And so it's that quick little rapport building that can really, you know, build some trust early on. Yeah. And I find like, especially with Spanish and having a really high Hispanic population in the Atlanta area that sometimes I'll put myself as the person in the booth. If there's two of us working together on a complex or very timid or autistic or whatever kind of patient who's Spanish speaking. And sometimes it just really breaks the ice if I'm not serving the role of the interpreter there, but I'm just serving the role of the, um, you know, play assist or VRA assist or whatever, but the things that I'm saying in the booth are in Spanish and therefore it kind of like just calms the child a little bit. And it's not as Mm. scary as having a foreign language being spoken to you in a room that you already think is kind of freaky. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. That's really cool how that comes in like that. That's awesome. So I'm curious, what is the current setup for working with an interpreter where you are working? So I'm really fortunate still that we have a lot of in-person interpreters because the office that I work at is right next to a major hospital, like walk across the driveway and you're at a major hospital, a children's hospital here in Atlanta um, that we're affiliated with. And so when we have many types of appointments that we schedule as outpatient appointments, we are able to have an in-person Spanish interpreter 
or an in-person sign language interpreter. Um, the Spanish, we don't have to set up as far in advance because they're on staff at the hospital and we can just kind of block their time. The sign language, we usually set up several days in advance and you know book them for a two-hour minimum time slot. Um, and they arrive at the waiting room at the same as the patient. Um, if we if it's not Spanish that we need, or if there's not an in-person Spanish interpreter available, then we have um, phone interpreting is the easiest to get access to. We're trialing out some of the kind of iPad systems where it's like a video and audio. Um, that's sort of like an iPad on wheels, but um, there's actually been some challenges, I think, with internet and security and stuff like that. So our default right now still goes back to the phone if we don't have an in-person interpreter. Got it. Okay. Really interesting. So there's a lot of different options. Um, so when you're thinking of like, so when you would use an interpreter, like the situations where it's called for, and then what kind of planning do you need to do? Because I feel like with that many options, it's great because it's rare that something could fall through and you'd be left with no option at all. But at the same time, it's like, there's a lot of like the person could be sent to the wrong building and then, or the phone call could have a really long wait time or the, the iPad on wheels could, you know, lose its connection. There's a lot of ways that things can go wrong. So just thinking, you know, looking ahead, when, when, is it the best way? When is it the best time to use an interpreter? Do you prefer one of those options over the other in like different situations? Because um, I know, you know having a you know a difficult diagnosis conversation is you know is one thing. You know, showing a family how to you know put on a tamper-proof battery door that can be hard with someone over the phone. So I'm just interested in like when each one of them is good or bad, and you know what your planning process is for that. Yeah, so we're when when people are registered in our system in the electronic medical record, it it asks for their primary language, and so it's part of their electronic medical record which language the mother speaks, which language the father speaks. Um, ironically, it doesn't always ask which language the child speaks, which I think becomes more important when they're like preteen or teenage. And I, I have found some situations where like, especially my sign language users, where like the parent speaks English or Spanish, and we can talk more about that later. But I really want an ASL interpreter there because that's the child's main language. So that's a side note. But um, so if you know, we know in advance because they're already in our system that they have Spanish or Burmese or whatever as their primary language. And then if it's an option that we might have in person, if it's a Spanish speaking family, then our registration staff goes ahead and calls and sets up to have somebody at that day and time. Um, but especially in COVID and other times, staffing is tight. And so, as you said, you may get to that time, that day and time, and they don't have anyone available or that you call over to the hospital and they say there are going to be 20 minutes or whatever. So then, um, or like when we do diagnostic ABRs and things, like you said, when you're the person giving the bad news for the first time that there's a hearing loss, sometimes I'll choose to wait for the in-person interpreter and Again, fortunately, since I speak a little bit of Spanish, I'll sometimes say, um, you know, I'm waiting for our medical interpreter to arrive or something like that. Um, but if I just know it's going to be tense and emotional and the phone is not going to really be as good of a connection for us or, you know, emotionally it's not going to serve as well, then I'll sometimes choose to wait. Otherwise, if it's like a routine hearing aid check or, you know, CI check or something like that where we've met many times and we kind of know the drill of what we're going to do each time, then I might use the phone or the iPad. Um, and like you said, the 
the physical aspect of what we do of literally like showing people, this is the battery and make sure you take the sticker off and make sure it sits this way. Like asking an interpreter over the phone to interpret, (laughs) make sure you put the battery in like this doesn't mean too much if they're not saying it at the exact time that you're pointing to that positive symbol or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really important that we kind of bear in mind what's lost when we have to go with something that's a little bit less optimal like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually leads me to another question. Like, so what are you finding? So audiology is a, is a field full of strange vocabulary. Um, whether it's sound processor or I'm trying yes. to think of like, I mean, there's just so many coil. words that we use coil. And I mean, like, <laughs> especially in CI, but just in audiology in general, audiometer, tympanometer, it's like phrases no one's ever heard before. Yes. So uh, how are you finding like navigating those situations? So it's one thing, you know, when you're working in Spanish and you've probably at this point picked up a lot of those terms and you can help the interpreter maybe with a vocabulary word they might not know, but then in other languages too, I'm curious how you navigate that. Yeah. So one thing that I've come across in Spanish that I don't know if is true in other languages is that the words that we use for low and high for like frequency are also the words that they would use for low and high in volume, like soft and loud. Okay. (laughs) So um, different interpreters seem to handle that challenge differently when we're looking at the audiogram and we're talking about your child hears the low frequencies well, but not the high frequencies. A lot of times I think that becomes very confusing to the Spanish speaking population because they think you just said your kid hears the soft things really well but not the yeah. loud things, which like, that doesn't make any sense, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they're over there going, well, I mean, when I yell their name, they hear me. So that doesn't, <laughs> you know, and then you've lost them. So um, yeah. I try to, uh, in Spanish, I know that's a challenge. So I actually make a sound when I'm, in, when I'm discussing frequency and I'll say like something that has a low pitch, your child can hear well, and I'll make a sound like boo, 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 boo. And then when mm-hmm. I say something about a high pitch is hard for your child, for instance, then I'll say like, ee, ee, ee you know, and it's, you feel like kind of dumb doing it, but I found that it's one of the most effective ways for them to understand that you're talking about the pitch instead of the loudness. Mm -hmm. Um, The word tono or tone can be interpreted in Spanish to mean frequency like that, but it also kind of, we use that word as we're presenting a tone, right? So again, we're like overlapping too many uses on the same word. So that becomes confusing. So, but the takeaway from that, I like to think because I, I become flabbergasted when I have a Burmese or something and I'm like, oh, dang, I don't speak a lick of that language. I have no mm-hmm. idea if you're interpreting that correctly or not. So um, I try to use the, you know, now describe back for me what, what we just talked about. If you had to summarize that to your brother or you're going to go home and talk to the dad or whatever, like, let me make, let's make sure that we understand each other and that that's come across. Can you describe the, the main points there back to me? And I found that's helpful to find when they go, he hears loud things, but not soft things. And you're like, whoops. Okay. We yep. missed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a great, great strategy. That's excellent. Are there any other, like, uh, like not necessarily related to translation, but more just like working with an interpreter tips and things that you find are really effective? So I definitely like I I like to pay attention with the sign language interpreters that I have on where they sit. So um, they have strong preferences on where they want to sit. So if you 
have a sign language interpreter, I think it's helpful to ask, like, where would you like your chair to be or something like that? Because they are very tuned into, um, they want to be across from the patient or who they're, excuse me, I shouldn't say patient. They should be across from the person who needs their services. So whether that be the parent or the patient. And then um, like lighting is really important in in sign language. Not that we have like super dark rooms, but sometimes the booth or other areas can be a little bit dim. So they'll choose an area that has good lighting and they don't like to be backlit. So it's bad in ASL to have like to put them in front of a bright window because it's like taxing on the person watching their signing to have to um, look at their their hands in front of their body or around their body, but not have the bright light coming in behind them bother them. So, yeah. So I like to ask the ASL interpreters, like, where would you like your chair? And then I try to organize the other chairs kind of around that, like the, the mom and the dad. And, you know, um, and then I also try to ask. I try to give the interpreter a little bit of knowledge about who the people are in the appointment. So of course, everything we say should be interpreted. So I'm not saying anything that I wouldn't want a family to know, but I might say like, Oh, Tina, who they keep talking about, Tina is the aunt or something like that. And so then the interpreter in whatever language, if they're having trouble keeping straight who all we're talking about, and that's this person said that, or this person, you know, doesn't agree with the hearing aids or something like that, then it kind of ties it together. So they're not just constantly having to say Tina or whatever. And also in sign language, they would set that person up with like a sign name if they have one. So in ASL, you know, I like to say like, hello, interpreter, this is Johnny who you're interpreting for. Um, Johnny, what's your sign name? And then Johnny will show the interpreter his sign name. And then if we inter- if we're talking about somebody that keeps coming up, I'll say like, what's that person's sign name? So the interpreter can use that sign name when they're, um, you know, in the conversation. Sure, sure. That makes total sense. Um, yeah, that's really good. I hadn't really considered lighting to be such a major factor, but that definitely makes sense. It's it can be like grading just to have to try to pick up what someone's signing in the shadows like that. That's that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I mean they um, wear they dress appropriately. You know, they usually wear like a dark colored shirt or whatever, so they're like setting up their whole day so they can be seen easiest. But if we wreck it with like putting them like all the way over in a corner or, you know, far away or something like that. It can really take away from it. Oh yeah. And one more thing I wanted to say about that is I have some um, children that I've seen over time who have come to sign language late. Like maybe they didn't start learning sign language until they were six or eight or something like that. And I also like to give the interpreter a heads up that, um, you know, hey, Johnny used to use English, but then he lost his hearing. And, you know, now he uses some English, but he has been signing for about two years. And that helps the interpreter know kind of how much of English word order versus ASL word order to expect before they just start busting in with like true, full, hardcore ASL that the child may not be familiar with. Sure. I feel like that's a great an insight that you have probably more because you have that ASL experience and you can tell when someone's going to need that extra support. Um, that can be really helpful. Um, I'm wondering, so there's, there's the recommendation when working with an interpreter is that, you know, allowing, you know, pausing, not going on for a really long time, letting them have enough time to convey their information, but also, I mean, the interpreter has to be able to process what you're saying. And then, so there's sometimes, you know, simultaneous and then pauses. What do you find, like, what are you using the most and, and what's the most effective for you? I I do not like simultaneous 
um, interpreting. And in fact, I have had some Spanish speaking interpreters or others that have been interpreting for me where I'll actually stop them and ask them if they would mind waiting and interpreting after. It simultaneous is so much faster, which I understand that. But especially since we're working with a population with hearing loss or the potential to have hearing loss, more people talking over each other at one time is not a good thing. So, um, and I actually find it a little bit hard myself. Maybe it's a limitation on my part to like think of the next thing I'm about to say when the person is right now talking on top of me with the thing I just said. So if I find it interrupts my thought process a little bit and can be a little bit challenging for families. So I usually will ask kindly ask them if they could refrain and could wait until I have a pause and then interpret. And one other thing is like after a while, we as clinicians have good um, skills, I think, at remembering to like give information in little chunks that are, you know, that an interpreter can then interpret and we're, we get good at giving those pauses, but some families are not good at that. And so, um, although many interpreters will say like, Oh, senora, espero, you know, like, hold on just a minute while I need to, sometimes I'll also like hold up my hand or something to show the mom or the dad or somebody like pause. I think the interpreter is about to die over there holding all of yeah. that in their head. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, it wouldn't be wrong if you didn't do that. But if you kind of know that that's how they function best, then you can help them out by being like, yo, long winded lady over there, take a break for this yeah. poor interpreter. <laughs> Yeah, that's really, that's a really funny situation that you have to try to accept because it's not something that they, you know, might encounter a lot. And so they definitely need some guidance there. No, and even in Spanish, we have a lot of families that are from like indigenous regions, you know, Guatemala and Honduras and different places sure. where Spanish is not even their main language. And sometimes if it's like far enough from Spanish, we'll get an interpreter in that specific dialect that would be on the phone. But if it's pretty close to Spanish, we normally, they'll list Spanish typically as their primary language because they don't, they know that not a lot of people have ever heard of their random dialect. But um, sometimes I have had Spanish interpreters say like, hold on, let me re-explain that. I don't think Spanish is her first language and I want to make sure that comes across clearly. So like the back and forth with the interpreter during the session, I think can be really helpful so that if they're noticing that things are not getting across well, they're also alerting you to that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, I'm curious. I, I kind of briefly mentioned this with the the difference in vocabulary. Um, and this is just more like what your personal experience has been. So when you are in a situation where the interpreter like is not either they haven't ever heard that phrase before or it's like a completely new concept to them. How are you like navigating those situations as someone who like you can kind of tell what's going on in the situation? Yeah. So sometimes if I feel like sometimes good interpreters, I think will say, I'm sorry, but can you explain that again? Or can you use different words to explain that? Like I actually was just talking to an interpreter the other day and she said, um, an example of that would be when we use the, the phrase, we're going to support you. She was thinking of this in the hospital population, but like, if you can think of that phrase, like we're going to support you, that could mean a thousand different things, depending on what the situation is. Like if it's, um, you know, a financial counselor, does that mean we're going to give you money? Or if it's, um, somebody going through chemotherapy, does that mean that we're going to find the right protocol for you? Or if 
we're talking about a near death experience or something, does that mean we're going to keep you comfortable? Like there's so many different ways that that, sure. that that phrase means different things. So she's a really good interpreter. Flora, you might remember her from your time at Choa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she was like, I always try to stop people when they use that phrase because I say, you know, could you please say exactly what you mean by that? Like how, how would we support you? What would that mean in your language? And so I think uh, it's awesome when we have an interpreter that recognizes that you've said something kind of nebulous or that doesn't direct translate very well. And instead of going off on their own tangent of what they think it might mean, they say, like, they'll usually say to the, to the family, hold on in Spanish, you know, the hold on interpreter requires clarification. And then they'll say to me, like, I don't really understand what you mean by, you know, plug the headpiece into the cable or whatever, you know. And so the, that way I feel like they can help us along those roads. It's a lot nastier if we have to guess on what's going well and what's not going well or try to pick up on a situation where what we're saying is not getting across very well. So um, I even try to like thank the interpreters that I work with regularly uh, if they tell me something that's not well communicated or that could be explained better or that this just doesn't direct translate very well. Cause I, I enjoy working with them and I enjoy the language aspect of it. So, and I want to be able to do a better job the next time of using words that will direct translate better. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great strategy. And, and I do remember Flora and I'm thinking maybe one day she'll have to be a guest here because she is definitely a, she's like a very calming presence. That's what I remember the most about yes. her. And also just extremely brilliant. She's just very, very smart. But the other thing also about Flora, and I don't think it's telling anything she wouldn't care, but like sometimes the interpreters don't have perfect hearing. <laughs> and so that's a good point. I will also say as much as we pay attention to where we're seating our ASL interpreters, I have some Spanish interpreters where if a lot of people are talking at once or it just gets a little too messy, then I I say like, hold on or like move, pick up her chair and move it somewhere so that she can be next to the mom or whoever so that the kid playing with the toy in the floor that's like going ding, 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 you know, that <laughs> she's not trying to have it to listen to my words and interpret that over all of that too much. So, um, so another question about working with phone interpreters. So we mentioned that it is challenging when we are talking about physically doing things, removing the magnet and changing the batteries, all of those things that are so physical that it's so important that the family understands because it can be, I mean, especially with children, it's like, it's all kind of up to the parent what's going to be the outcome for their child in these situations. Sure, so yeah. do you have any like specific advice for working with a phone interpreter through those more like physical interactions, like the more demonstrative kind of things we have to do? I think I make my phrases or the number of sentences like a little bit shorter so that if I'm, I'm not saying like you put the battery in face up and then close the door like this. And when it clicks, you know, it's on like, that's a lot of things. And so we could do that in English just fine because we're doing it at the same time. We're saying it and doing it at the same time. But I think I would cut that up into shorter, you know, first you make sure that the battery has the positive side face up, then let them translate that. Then, okay, when you close the door, you should hear it click, then let them translate that. And then the clicking noise means you just turned it on, translate that. So like breaking it up so that each item that we're pointing to or touching or doing together physically, that it has its own sentence. 
Yeah, that's that's great. And then I think also utilizing the strategy you mentioned earlier with the teach back with, all right, now mm-hmm. you show me how to do this and then have them talk talk you through it out loud and then have the interpreter tell you what they're saying. I mean, I think that's a really great strategy too. Yeah, and that way you'll catch like if like sp- like red, right, blue, left. That makes great sense in English, but it doesn't translate well to other languages. So <laughs> sometimes the family will come back and translate back to you, you know, okay, so the red one goes for your left ear or whatever. And then I'll, and I'll say usually like, no, the red one goes for your right ear. And I'll sometimes even say to families who are exposed to some English, and I can tell they have some English, some Spanish, I'll say like, it makes sense in English. We say red, right, because those both start with an R. I know it doesn't make as much sense in Spanish, you know, <laughs> but then sometimes they might go home and be like, oh, red, right. Okay, rojo, right, you know, like, <laughs> so kind of, I feel like that kind of stuff, if you ask it back and they've gotten it confused, then you can reteach it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many little phrases like that, that we use that definitely do not come across when interpreted. So, you have to be careful not to lean too heavy into our like favorite little catchphrases that that don't make any sense. (laughs) Do Do you find that there's any specific ways that when you're working with an interpreter, it kind of changes the dynamic between, you know, you and the patient or you and the family any in any like kind of specific way? Well, you know, even a really awesome, wonderful interpreter is a barrier, I think. And I mean, I don't mean that to be a Debbie Downer, but you know, it's a person in between you and the patient or the parent or whoever. And so I think we have to recognize that and that some, some cultures or some families may feel less of a connection because you're having to use an interpreter. So given that, trying to make every effort to otherwise kind of connect with them is helpful. And knowing that different cultures, we could talk about that for a whole nother hour, but different cultures, you know, manage healthcare in different ways is also appropriate that like uh, our Hispanic population oftentimes sees us as the expert and whatever we say, you know, goes. So when we have us, then an interpreter, then the family, and they feel like, lower on the totem pole, they may not feel as comfortable like asking a question or saying that they don't understand or something like that. So, um, you know, we have to acknowledge that sometimes that does put a little bit of a wall up or a little bit of a barrier in place. And therefore, sometimes I might ask more than one time, like, what questions do you have? Or how do you feel about what we learned today? Or how do you feel about the news that we talked about today? What do you think is what do you think is going to be the reaction when you go home and tell your family today or things that maybe delve a little bit more emotional to try to have that connection, even if the material that we shared was somewhat formal or, you know, based on details and information and not actually that emotional and to try to overcome the fact that we have this person in the middle of us, because then they might say, you know, well, my mom has really been waiting for this day because she thought that Javier couldn't hear. And I always thought he could. So my mom's going to say, I told you so, or, you know, like you'll come out with a story or something like that. And that actually is a way of making a connection that maybe would have happened more naturally if you were talking to each other in the same language. Yeah. Wow. That's a really, really, really great point. Just how important when, you know, when there's a common language shared between the clinician and the patient, you don't have to worry about those 
interactions having that kind of a barrier. And I think you're right. Like, I don't think the interpreter is the barrier. It's really the language that's the barrier. But then having that other person that's like in that moment, whose only job really is to help facilitate can kind of detract from those you know, more personal, emotional experiences where you really get a lot of info. It's, it's really useful information too, just in terms of how to serve this patient when you know the bigger picture of the family and you know the bigger picture of their history and things like that. So yeah, that's a really, really great point. And I think we kind of tend to delve into that a little bit when we have a language in common, but sometimes when we're using an interpreter, let's be honest, it's more lengthy. The appointment takes longer. You know, our time's almost up. We're feeling a little bit stressed about getting on to the next person, whatever. For whatever myriad of reasons, I think that we tend to be a little bit more like formal, like here's the information. You tell me if you understand the information. Here's when your next appointment is. Here's what you're going to do now. But kind of to stop and remind ourselves, like this is still a relationship. And especially when you're delivering like important positive or negative information or news of a hearing change or things like that, like uh, just to reconnect and take that extra moment to share, you know, an emotional connection, even though that's not an inherently necessary part of the interaction. Like we, we could skip that and we could check off that we did all of our things for that appointment, but, and it it takes extra effort when we have that extra person in the middle, but I think it's still really worth it so that the family feels that bond. Absolutely. Do you feel like there's anything that you do um, like before the appointment, if you have time with the interpreter, like, are there things that you try to check off just to help facilitate those more like those more positive experiences in that way? Is there anything that you do or talk to with the interpreter? I mostly just try to give the interpreter a little bit of a background of what kind of appointment we're having just so that they can kind of set up in their mind what we might be talking about. Like I'll say today we're doing a hearing aid consultation. We're picking out Johnny's first hearing aids or something like that so that then they might know, oh, okay, so the family's not familiar with hearing aids because this is the first set. So um, everything we're talking about is going to be new versus if I say like, oh, we're just here to trim the tubing and make sure the hearing aids are working well or whatever, like, then they might be like, oh, they're probably familiar with these things. Um, And then if the child has special needs, whereby the child is not going to be understanding the interpreter, I try to also give them a heads up about that. So if it's an autistic child who is nonverbal, and, you know, it's not because there's a language barrier here, but the child doesn't respond normally to being talked to and isn't going to talk back, then I want the interpreter to be aware of that so that they know that, you know, I'm, I might give really abbreviated instructions on what we're going to do, for instance, because the child is going to do, do it based more on what my actions are and not based on what I'm saying. Sure. So letting them know, like, what kind of appointment, what are we getting into here? And then anything more specific about the child that can be helpful to them in terms of, you know, orient orienting, like how they're going to approach the conversation. Yeah, that's really good. And sometimes if I already know the family, I'll say, you know, Mom speaks Spanish, Johnny speaks ASL or whatever, which is like the most interesting interpreting experiences that I've had at CHOA <laughs> is the multi-interpreter situation um, where I have like a Spanish-speaking interpreter and an ASL interpreter in the same room at the same time as me and a parent and a child. Um, 
And well, that, that's a that's a great segue because I do want to talk about that. <laughs> it's really fascinating, and it, you would think like, oh, how often does that come up, Kelly? But like, I have got a, probably a good five or six patients that I see regularly that are in that position, and um, a lot of times, you know, not to get <laughs> too heavy on implant versus signing versus anything else, but the the fact of the matter is, is that you know some of these patients have hearing aids or have an implant, but their school setup is still their most successful with signing and, or they've been in positioned in a total communication classroom for one reason or another, they go on to have an interpreter or be in a, a truly signing uh, middle school or high school. And it would be so awesome if all these families learned sign language, if that was the easiest language for their child to access. But um, it's asking a lot of any family. We know that. And it's definitely asking a lot if the parent's first language is not English, because there's not a lot of resources there that's going to translate, you know, manzana into apple and then apple into a sign. And if you think about what it takes to learn a whole nother language, that's really what it would take. Sure. So even having like a deaf mentor or somebody come to the house works well for the child if they have some, you know, basis in sign or basis in English from school. But I found that a lot of these families, the parent is not very well connected to sign and it's not a judgment. It's just the fact of the matter. And they feel like they're doing a good job by sending their child to school and their child's getting good grades. And, um, but they, I have children that I work with who are teens and are like partially trilingual, you know, some English, some Spanish, some sign. And the parent is pretty much Spanish. Yeah. And it becomes a really interesting situation when we get into a room together and this might be the only time for the next six months that the parent and the child actually are able to communicate with each other like effectively. And so some of the most fascinating slash upsetting kind of situations have been in those times with where, and it's a super slow, I should start by saying like, woo anything you say in English, then the Spanish has to interpret to Spanish. Then the ASL has to interpret to ASL. It's long. It's you, you ain't going to get that done in 30 minutes. <laughs> like, yeah. If I know that that's the situation, I'll book it for a longer period of time. Um, but sometimes I have had some odd questions and things come up simply because they are not usually communicating at home more than just, you know, Hey, are you hungry? You know, do you want tortillas for dinner or, you know, that kind of thing. And so I've had my, one of my famous ones I can think of is this child who all of a sudden said in the, he was like a preteen in the middle of the appointment. Well, none of that really matters. He signed, excuse me. He signed this. None of that really matters anyway, because an asteroid is going to come blow up the earth. And we all were like, what? And so that had to be interpreted to Spanish. And then the ASL voiced, the ASL voiced for him. And then that was interpreted to Spanish. And so then I looked at the child like, what? And the, the mom looked at the child like, what? And then the mom said, why do you think that you've never said that before? Back translate all of that through Spanish to English, English to sign. And the child is like, well, I saw it on the, on the internet. You know, I, I saw on the internet that, that the world's coming to an end soon because there's going to be an asteroid. And this turned into nothing to do with audiology. Of course. But like, 
a fascinating discussion about what happens when your child doesn't have anyone in their home who they can talk to in the same language. And so they seek out their answers for life's questions from friends, from the internet, things like that. And then we get into a situation where we can finally talk to each other. And, you know, the parents are saying, that's not what we believe. Remember when we went to church last week and did it, you know, and it becomes like this really complicated conversation in the middle of sure. your office where you thought you were just like tuning up their hearing aids or something. Um, but I have had many appointments like that, many at the, by this point where an emotional topic comes up, a child talks about, you know, what they really, that what they want to do with their life or, um, the parents frustrated that the child that doesn't show any interest in learning to drive or, you know, things that I'm like, well, don't y'all talk about this at home. Yeah. Um, the bottom line is no, they don't because they don't yeah. have a language in common. So although kind of off topic from the whole interpreter discussion, whenever I think you have multiple interpreters there, I think it's a red flag of there's two gaps going on and there's mm-hmm. probably not a lot of, crucial, you know, deeper than surface level conversation going on at home. And sometimes that's going to bring up some stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember if you joined me on any of those. (laughs) No, I I did. So yeah, I can remember one appointment where it was a mother and a daughter. The daughter's probably, you know, in her teenage years. And I have a sister. So I know that those mother-daughter conversations in the teenage years can be very intense And it was exactly one of those situations where they've never, not never, but they don't really have any opportunities to hash it out at home. Mm -hmm. And these are just, you know, mild, they can get a little heated just because, you know, that's how it can be with family sometimes. But there are these, the the, the argument isn't over anything really severe. Sometimes it can be if this is their only opportunity to really communicate. But it's like these kind of everyday interactions that we take for granted, you know, speaking the same language as a member of our family, they just don't even have access to at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I know that that's, I'd be interested to talk to an interpreter about, you know, those kinds of situations. And I, I know their job, you know, is to interpret what's going on, right? Like they're not... Mm-hmm guiding the conversation in any way. But I do wonder if part of them is ever like, okay, we've got to get back on track here. We're not really accomplishing anything for the They've appointment. Probably or they probably thought that in my office before. <laughs> 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 because I sometimes let it turn into a like semi-social work appointment just because I feel so bad that they don't have a- other ways that they can hash this out. You know, like, yeah. are you and dad getting a divorce? I've had that before. And I'm like, oh, oh holy gosh. cow. Like, you should be able to talk to your mom about that because again, if you can't talk to your mom and that's who you live with, then how are you ever going to get that answer? You know? Absolutely. But you're right. I mean, I'm sure that interpreters have been like, geez, Kelly, I thought <laughs> we were here to talk about whether their implant was broken or something like that. And I'm, we've gone way off course. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes it's, I mean, those conversations have to happen somewhere. And I mean, if this is where they're going to get access, it's like a, part of you just has to let the conversation roll and until I, it comes I back. Lie, around. I, I probably have had to call in our social worker more times in those, those multi-interpreter situations than I do in a regular situation, just because more stuff comes up and more stuff that sometimes needs addressing, you know? So yeah. I'm lucky to work in a place where we have a social worker that I can call in during if it gets really hairy, you know. Sure, sure. 
I'm curious, uh, just thinking from like a social work perspective. So when we make a new, you know, identification of a baby with hearing loss and we want to talk to the family through their options. So you, especially as a cochlear implant audiologist, you know, I mean, that's not the only thing you do, but that's one of the big things you do. That's one of the conversations that we have with families is what is going to be the best communication option for your child. And so when you're having that conversation through an interpreter, I'm curious if any situations come to mind or it like how you typically navigate because that's just of all the conversations we have in audiology that's one of the toughest ones probably and if there's any kind of special consideration yeah i think that one requires a little bit more checking in with the family as you go when you're having to use an interpreter or when you don't have a language in common or like and for me i'll think of it as a you know if this is a family that speaks a language that i don't speak then I feel a little lost because it's sometimes I don't know how are you receiving what I'm sharing, you know? And so I, I feel like I can kind of get that a little bit from in, in languages that I speak. If even there's little side conversations or something like that, then it clues me in like, Oh, they're understanding it or they're grieving or they're feeling mad or sad or whatever. But um, so I would say not knowing that in, in situations where I feel like that's getting lost a little bit, then I try to do more pauses. Like I try to implement like a little silent moment periodically, just generally speaking, when you're sharing heavy news like that, so that if the family needs to take this conversation in a totally different direction, or they're not ready to hear all that today, or they've already gone in their head to, can my kid go to the prom or whatever, you know, wherever they're at, like that you provide a moment for that. And um, especially when there's that language barrier, I try to provide extra, maybe like moments of that or extra times where I say like, how does this news match with what you were thinking you would hear today? Mm. Or, um, you know, how do you think this is going to be received by your family? Like since the, um, you know, the cultural aspect is so interesting to me so that I, when I ask that question, I sometimes really have no idea whether it's going to be, well, the family's going to be totally upset and wrecked or, you know, my family always thought he was deaf. I was the only one that didn't, or I can't even tell my parents this, what I've learned today, because it would be so unacceptable in their culture. You know, like that, those kind of things would change how you proceed with the conversation, like so drastically that, you know, just taking pauses to ask how, you know, what are you thinking or what are you feeling or how will your family react are, are ways to kind of check in. And then I think it takes more appointments, honestly, to get through maybe the same amount of information. Again, you might have a family that's just voraciously wanting to know from the very first moment, you know, what are all of the intervention options? How can I start right now? What's the first thing I need to do? You know, we all have yeah. those kind of families. Absolutely. And then we have ones where, they're just beset with grief to the point that you might have to break that out into even more visits than you normally would in order to provide them the opportunity to absorb it, kind of get it into their cultural mindset of how that's going to be. Think of their questions, ask their questions and have them be translated back to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, I think with the communication options, when you're talking to somebody that is in the United States and they live in an area where it's predominantly English speaking, for for example, where we live. And um, then you're asking them like what their goals are for their child. A lot of times they will feel like ASL is very overwhelming because 
they don't even speak English, you know? And so I feel like we have to kind of take that with an extra like little padding of saying like you, if you choose that for your child or if you want your child to learn sign and also get a hearing aid or an implant or whatever, you know, we can help provide some resources for that. Doesn't mean you need to be fluent tomorrow. You can learn along with Johnny or whatever, but like it seems really overwhelming. I think when you, say here's here's an avenue where you need to go to a bunch of appointments and do a bunch of things but they feel like okay i can do that and then here's an avenue where you got to go learn another language you know yeah that feels yeah. really overwhelming to a lot of people yeah absolutely yeah that's such a tricky like landscape to navigate but i think that's a really good way to go about it and it's my goal um, not to have very many of those families where the child and the parent can't communicate in the future so when yeah. i'm starting with them young you know, what, for whatever reason, if the child is not learning spoken language easily and we're needing to use a, a visual communication system or whatever, I try really hard to, to write at, as early as possible to say, like, you have to learn, you know, like, let me help yeah. you find some classes and things like that. And bless it, I'll even use examples of my other families and just say, like, I have met teenagers before who really had a hard time talking with their mom. I don't want your baby to be like that. I want you to have a language in common. It doesn't seem like he has been learning well in spoken language or, you know, he has some other challenges that are making this hard for him, but he seems to be gravitating towards uh, sign language or a picture communication system or whatever, like, but please let us find a language in common. Yeah. And just encouraging them, you know, from the beginning that this is going to be so critical, I'm sure can, you're going to have less and less of these, you know, multilingual family spats in, you know, a CI appointment. Yes, yes. yes. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we're coming up to the end of our time here. Do you feel like you have anything else, like any other insights or stories that you want to share? I feel like this has been really, really helpful and insightful. Um. Only that sometimes I correct the interpreter and that's pretty funny only because I know Spanish. So I wish that I knew all the languages so that if they accidentally said left and I said right, or if they accidentally said, turn it up. And I said, turn it down that I could be like, no, I said, turn it up, (laughs) but it's kind of fun to speak Spanish and know some sign language. And that occasionally if I'll say something and I go, "Uh uh-uh, that wasn't right then I'll like just correct them and say it, say it again. Or I'll say, sometimes I'll say it in Spanish and then the interpreter really gets on their toes. But, (laughs) (laughs) and then, uh, but it's, you know, I wish we, we all knew the language so that we could do that. But the fact is there's sometimes miscommunications. And so that's why if you like check in along the way, you might catch that. Whereas I get to be a little sneaky and sometimes be like, "Mm -mm, that's not what I said. (laughs) Yeah. That is your secret superpower. You can always (laughs) be checking in, you know, it's, and you you don't have to, you know, worry that anything else is lost because you've got a translator there. Sorry. And you have an interpreter there, but you can always make sure that, you know, nothing's being missed. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Would you, would you be interested in sharing your email if people have any questions for you? Sure. Yeah. My email is Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y dot Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-Y at CHOA, C-H-O-A dot org. It stands for Children's Healthcare of Atlanta dot org. And I'd be more than happy to entertain um, emails. Awesome. Well, Kelly, thank you so, so, so much for joining me. This has been a, like a really, really cool conversation. No problem. Thanks Um, for having me. Of course. And I'll have to be having you, you know, get in touch with Flora for me so we can maybe (laughs) 
figure that out because that could be a really good conversation between the three of us, I think. She has a lot of experience. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So hold on one second and we're going to switch over to questions. Sounds good. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.